I think the best approach is to go to as many houses as possible. I think it's a good way of meeting people and you never know what you're going to see. You might meet their neighbor who wants to sell their house for a really good price. Just going to houses has helped me a lot in terms of just the knowledge side of things, you know, learning more about the way houses are laid out. And it's helped me get to the point where I can sort of understand like, what do I need to look for when I go to a house and how do I sort of in my head, like in five minutes crunch, like this is about how much it'll cost to fix this house up. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Isaac Barrow. Isaac is the operations manager for the Parrot Property Group in Indianapolis. On this episode, Isaac will show us how he runs his real estate investing business with his family and what they do to make it successful. He'll give us tips on how to find true cash buyers and what to do to get healthy deal flow. If you want to learn how to run a successful real estate investing business, then this episode is for you. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, Download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. Okay, so Isaac, welcome to our show. Uh, for everyone listening here today, Isaac is the son of Pete Barrow. Uh, Pete was on our show back on episode number 98, and Isaac is here to talk about his role in the operations. So Isaac, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So Isaac, do you want to introduce yourself and let us know a little bit more about like who you are and give a refresher to our audience who may not remember what your dad does and what business do you guys run and where do you operate? Sure. Uh, we're in Indianapolis. Uh, my name is Isaac Barrow. I'm the general manager of uh, Parrot Property Group. We're a family-owned and operated business. We're kind of a one-stop shop for all things. I mean, we do leasing, we do management, we do, we've done flipping, we've done wholesaling. We're a brokerage, so we'll do listings. I'm a listing agent, so I can list houses on the market. Uh, we've actually gone into some private lending We've been in operation for almost six years when you consider everything. I've been doing it for about four. My role is more around just the day-to-day operations. Very cool. So when you guys list your properties, are you guys hosting your own open houses or how does that work? Honestly, the stuff we do, you know, it's not really that kind of those kind of listings. I mean, it's not like these huge, you know, retail flip listings. It's more I would say more of the stuff we list is more like of an investor base. You know, a lot of them are, you know, occupied houses with tenants in them. So we haven't had to do that. We have staged one house before, but we didn't have to do like an open house or anything. So honestly, we don't even have any experience with that. So who are your buyers? Honestly, most of the buyers we've dealt with are mostly cash buyers. We have a bunch of listings right now. We have like 15 listings and I think like eight of them are active and seven are pending. And most of them are investors. Now, every once in a while, we have a deal that really works for a homeowner where we'll fix it up, make it nice. 
and it's in a decent area and then we'll get a homeowner. But we just throw it out there and I try to contact people who we've done other agents we've done business with more than once and just sort of see how it works. And I'll say, hey, you know, we got this listing in this area. Sometimes what I'll do actually is even contact brokers who have done business in the area within the last 360 days or 540 days or whatever. And just say, hey, you know, I have a I saw you were the listing agent on this house. We have another one coming, similar price point or a little lower or a little higher. And that has actually been successful for us in the past. So just canvassing everything. And obviously we have our own relationships with other people you know, who we know what will fit for them. And is that mostly by just going up to different meetup groups and meeting other investors like that? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely helped. But one thing I've realized is just, yeah, you'll meet somebody through a meetup and then they know somebody and they know somebody and they know somebody. So it's just, sometimes it's just dumb luck. <laughs> but just going to meetup groups, being on social media, being on bigger pockets or whatever, and just the people that I've met through, I'll do business with one guy and, and then one of his business partners will contact me and then it just sort of grows. It's like a branch basically. So yeah, just different areas of and avenues of networking. Do you use like an email list or do you like actually use bigger pockets very religiously, like post once a day to get a bunch of business through there? Yeah. I mean, I have my dad mostly do that. He posts once a day. I try to, I just, I mean, I might be younger, but I'm not as good at keeping up with, social media and bigger pockets and stuff like that. He's better at it than I am actually, but bigger pockets, Facebook. I mean, we try to do stuff like that to farm out deals. And of course, just our own network. Sometimes we just have people we call who we say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this house? Even if we know they won't buy it necessarily, but like just getting their opinion and maybe they know somebody. So it's just calling around and shopping things out and sort of seeing. And also it's a good way of getting feedback. I mean, cause sometimes you might not know it, but you're sending something out that you might like, but not necessarily the most attractive to other people. So we try to get feedback and take constructive criticism or whatever if, if we're sending out a house for too much or something like that. So I, mean, I think the feedback is always good. Yeah, absolutely. You just send it to as many people as you can. So what's your role in the company? Like, How did you guys, you said you started about four years ago, but the company's been around for six. How did you get looped into this family business? Well, my brother moved here in 2013, around this time of year, and he bought a house just, and honestly, his plan, he, he runs IT. He's had an IT business for probably almost 15 years now. And he just came here because he wanted to find a place that was just a little cheaper to live, a little more personable. We're from the Maryland area. And he moved here and I would just come and visit every once in a while. Like I was actually with him when he decided he was going to move here. And then I would visit like once a year. I mean, I had a full-time job, so I wasn't able to just like pick up and leave for a month at a time. But I would come up for a weekend or something like that, fly in. It takes an hour to fly from Indy to Maryland. So I would just come and fly in, and I liked it. I liked it more and more each time I came. And I remember the last time I came here, it was like I, the whole plan was, yeah, I'm going to move here in eight months or something like that. But it was I came there, and I really liked it, and I moved there like a month later. Uh, so I just moved here and at first the plan was, I was just going to go get a job, like go, you know, I had a management background, so I would just like, I don't know, go manage a restaurant or something like that and just work my way up. And then eventually, you know, maybe buy a house a year. That was kind of my plan. And then things just changed like late 2015, 
my brother just needed some help with management because he actually had like a few rentals at that point, not many, but a few. And he just needed some help with management. He knew I had a management background. I helped him out. It was very easy. I just like made some phone calls and got a plumber to go to a house, silly stuff like that. But I really liked it. And then like two months later, I quit my job and that's pretty much it. In terms of my role, I basically just run everything except for, you know, the IT side of things. That's definitely not my thing. And the construction side of things, I've definitely learned a lot about construction, but I don't, you know, I don't know every, I definitely don't know anywhere near what my dad knows because he's been doing construction since he was 10 years younger than me. So I'm still learning from him. I'd like to be able to be more of a, more of a voice in the construction side of things, but it's just a learning process. My primary thing is obviously I'm an agent. So I do all of our listings. I do a lot of wholesaling. I deal with all our leasing, like filling houses and I manage all our houses as well. It sounds like it's a lot, but it's, it's really not that hard uh, to, to deal with all that. It's really not that bad. So my workload's not that bad. Just primarily like, I guess my role would be like acquisitions manager and like property manager and like broker basically. So from the acquisition manager side, I remember your dad said you guys send out a lot of mail and that's your mm -hmm. like main source of leads basically. Uh, so then the phone calls, do they come to you? They do. Yes. Okay, cool. And then do you know like numbers in terms of like how often you get calls, how many of them are people cussing you out versus <laughs> people who are actually willing to sell a, a deal? I mean, I would say, because I get these postcards too all the time from my house and I never call anybody. I've, I've never done it. I'll just throw them out. And I think that's what most people do. But yeah, every once in a while, if it really offends somebody, especially if like, because you can, you can get these postcards to have a picture of the house. So sometimes people really don't like that. They don't understand that like, it's not like I went to their house and like took a picture and like went on their porch or anything like that. It's, it's all generated by Google. But yeah, I mean, I would say, I probably get cussed out about eh, maybe not that often, honestly, maybe like every few days, <laughs> but not, not as often as you'd think. Uh, more often, it's just people who are just like, yeah, you know, I wasn't really considering selling, but I would think about it if I got $6 million or something <laughs> or something like that. So yeah, I mean, I would say the ratio is, is pretty strong in terms of just most people are pretty reasonable. And one thing I've learned from this is I mean, I always thought going in, when I just started doing this, I thought that like if you make somebody what would be considered a below market or disrespectful offer, you're going to get cussed out. That hasn't happened very often. It's usually just the people who don't want to be bothered that end up being upset about it. But I think people understand that it's a business for us and we're just trying to make money so we can't pay retail. So honestly, I, I think the reception from a lot of sellers has been pretty good in terms of just we're... We do make lower offers and we do make that pretty transparent from the beginning. Like we don't come out and say, oh yeah, you know, we pay homeowner price, we'll pay whatever, but we're pretty open about it. And then when we, even if it's rejected, people just say, hey, you know, no thanks. And that's fine. I mean, they don't have to sell the house. Like totally understandable. I mean, I would, I would say the same thing. If somebody called me and offered 50% of what I want for my house, I would just say, yeah, no thanks. So. Yeah. Cause you never know, like you're not in a position to do it, but some people might have to be right. And those are the ones who you guys are ultimately targeting anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. So when you're making those phone calls, are you doing a lot of the negotiations over the phone or do you actually try to accept appointments? Like what's like the call to action for your phone calls? 
I mean, we've tweaked that a lot. Like, I remember in the beginning, I was like, I just want to go to every house because I think it does help if you're actually there in person because you can build a rapport with somebody and you could say, like, I can't pay this for your house. But, hey, you know, we're here. We're getting along. We're talking. And sometimes that does get you a house just by being there and presumably being the only one there. And, you know, you might just get along really well and have a good vibe with them. I mean, I could think of a few times that's happened. And then sometimes what we'll do is we'll just we won't even go out unless we like the numbers or the numbers are at least somewhat close. Like if we're within like twenty thousand dollars on price, we'll go out and look. And we sort of tweak that depending on success. I think the best approach is to go to as many houses as possible for one gets you out of the house. For two, I think it's a good way of meeting people and you never know what you're going to see. Like you might meet their neighbor who wants to sell their house for a really good price. Or for me personally, just going to houses has helped me a lot in terms of just the knowledge side of things. Just, you know, learning more about the way houses are laid out. And it's helped me get to the point where I can sort of understand like, what do I need to look for when I go to a house and how do I sort of in my head, like in five minutes crunch, like this is about how much it'll cost to fix this house up. So I think the best strategy is to go out and look even unless the price is just so out of this world and it's just not a motivated seller at all. If there's even some semblance of being reasonable, I think the best strategy is to actually go and, you know, put your face out there. That makes sense because I remember when I first started getting in this industry, I didn't understand how big a typical home should be. You know, like, is it 1,200 square feet, 2,500 square feet, 20,000 square feet? I have no idea. But you start going to more and more houses, you start seeing, okay, like in this area, this city, it should be this size and this is how much it's going to cost to repair them. So, yeah, no, it's it's definitely helped me a lot because, and I could think of, you know, mistakes I've made from going to houses, but I can only imagine how many more mistakes I'd still be making if I wasn't going to houses. I mean, I remember. We almost bought this house that was like extremely fire damaged because, and this is like the biggest blunder I'd ever made. Like it was one of those houses where the basement was like really tucked away and like it was almost inside of the room and you had to like, it was one of those where you had to like lift up a little bar and then you could go down and I didn't see anything that would raise any red flags about fire damage. But I can imagine like if I hadn't seen that, I wouldn't be as careful as I am now about like check everything. Just definitely learning by experience is the best way to learn. Do you want to go into more detail about that story? So like you found like this basement was hidden or something when you did your first inspection? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember I did the first inspect. I I was going to buy it from a wholesaler and I went in the house, looked fine. I mean, I was really surprised that the price was so low, but I didn't want to ask questions. I didn't want to be like, oh, yeah, you know, you probably could ask more. But I go in, it looks fine. I leave and I'm like, yeah, you know, we can we can do this. This is a deal. This is a go. I even talked to some people who had bought in that area and they were like, oh, yeah, that's a great deal. I was like, okay, well, next day I talked to the wholesaler and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, the fire damage isn't that bad. And I was like, what? I was totally confused. I was like, what fire damage? He was like, in the basement. I was like, what are you talking about? And then I go back and I didn't even realize there was a basement. I thought, you know, in that area, a lot of the houses don't even have basements. So I went back there and it's like really tucked away. Like it's in the left corner of this back room. And it's incredibly hard to see if you didn't really look for it. And I, because the, the water heater was upstairs. So I just assumed that it was no basement i shouldn't have assumed 
that was like three years ago. That was a long time ago. But yeah, that's the one thing I think about whenever, uh, like whenever, especially whenever newer wholesalers call me, because I think these, they'll call me and say, you know, they'll ask about us. Like, you know, they're just trying to add us to our buyers list, but sometimes they'll just ask me questions and I'll just say like, check every square foot because you never know. So like we don't have basements here in California. So what was the actual issue that the basement was actually super fire damaged and it would cost a lot of money to re repair it? Yeah, it, it wasn't light at all. Like it was very fire damaged. It was pretty significant. And it's pretty amazing that I didn't even notice like none of the fire damage from the basement had affected any other part of the house. There was no burned out windows. There's nothing. It was really weird. Like I'd never seen any kind of situation like that. I mean, I've seen fire damaged houses and when like plenty of them and we stay away from them just because it's when the house is fire damaged, it's pretty hard to fix. And yeah, that house, it was like, you really couldn't tell. Like if you walk through the house, just the first floor, it was one level house. If you walk through that first level, you would not even know. And then I went to the basement. It's like, oh, Jesus. You could should have just uh, sealed it off. And then it would have been like one of those trap doors, like Evil Dead, where all the zombies hang out, you know? Yeah, it was just like that. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a, a huge learning experience for me. So, Okay. So like, what do you think it's only your, your best deal that you've ever done? How did those come to play? Well, we had a house a couple months ago that I would say was definitely one of the best deals we've ever done. We bought this place out in suburbs, you know, Vinyl Village. Good price. There's a three bed, two bath. And we just, the whole point was we were thinking either we could flip it, we could just sell it as is, or we'll just do like a little bit of work and then sell it. And that's what we did. We just... We bought the house next day. I got my painter in, got my carpet guy in, and I just had, and my carpet guy can do other flooring too. So he, he laid down a new floor in the kitchen. He laid down a carpet throughout the whole house, got it painted. It, so it looked nicer. It looked way more showable. It was occupied previously by a tenant. And yeah, I mean, it just, it went in like two days, like to a cash buyer. So that was definitely one of our better deals. And, and those are usually the best ones where it's like you get a good price. You have more than enough room to just, you know, do a little bit of work here and there and then sell it and still at a price where whoever buys it can still make some money. So those have been our best deals, stuff like that. We've had a bunch like that where it's like, we'll just get it, clean it up and sell it. And it's usually gone. It's, you know, get it professionally photographed, I think also makes a huge difference. So yeah, that was probably one of our best ones. And that wasn't even that long ago. Like, I think it was in October. Do you guys do mostly like rehab projects or wholesaling? I mean, we do primarily wholesaling. We have, you know, a lot of different people we work with who I've been working with for a long time. So we know what we're looking for when we look for stuff for them. Like I know what they want and I know what they don't want. Primarily, I would say we get stuff that needs cosmetic rehabs and we'll sell it to, you know, a turnkey provider or somebody like that who will fix it up, get it rent ready and, and they'll plan to sell it and manage it. You know, so I would say primarily the stuff, I mean, we're getting wholesale stuff. So a lot of that stuff is pretty distressed in some way, whether it be just a, like a frustrated landlord who has fixed up the house over and over and over again and just doesn't want to continue doing it and continue renting it out. Or it's just somebody who has a house that just needs a lot and they just don't want to do it. So, yeah, I would say it's a mix of those two sort of arenas of, of housing. And uh, how many mail pieces are you sending out every month to get your volume? Probably about 25,000, I'd say. 
That's a lot. And how do you filter your list? We use databases like list source and stuff to, and we update it and try to get the new list every month and just send it out. And we've always tweaked in terms of what we actually send out. So we'll, it really just depends on success rates. Yeah, I would say about 25, 30,000 and just use list source or something like that. We do email campaigns too. Have you found that certain like postcards work better or letters work better, different color envelopes? For us, it's been postcards. Okay. Is, do you think it's probably because like Indianapolis residents resonate better with postcards? I don't know what it is, to be honest, but it's just, for one, postcards are cheaper. I mean, postcards are like, depending who you get them from, they can be, you know, 35 cents and letters can be up to like a dollar. So postcards are just more cost effective. Letters are good, but I think sometimes people just don't want to read that much. Like it's a long, long letter. Like if somebody mailed me a letter about my house, I mean, I know it's not, you know, you're not reading a book, but you are reading more than I want to buy your house. Give me a call. If they're interested, they'll call you Uh, with a letter. It's like, you know, you got to pull it out of the envelope, open it, read it, get the number at the bottom with a postcard. It's just in your face right away. I think that's why they've worked a little better for us. That's true. You don't even have to open the letter. You just see it. Yeah, it's just right there. So have you tried using a... What's called like the text mail blast? Yes, we have. Okay. Any success there? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think people like texting more than calling. Like it's just calling. I think these days with all the technology can be just a little bit prehistoric for some people. So they'll prefer texting over calling. And, And that's true of a lot of different things, not just people trying to sell their house. Like I know me personally, I've had a lot more luck. Like if I'm dealing with contractors, I'll have a lot more luck texting them than calling them because people don't want to sit on the phone and talk. You know, they'll just, they want to go about their day and they'll text you sometimes by voice text. It doesn't, it's just less time consuming. So yeah, text, you know, text mail campaigns have definitely worked for us. Do you have a specific software that you guys like to use? Yeah, we use Twilio. Okay. Twilio has like their own thing where you just upload the numbers and you can like, you know, start sending those text messages. You can... Obviously, my brother does software, so you can. We've set it up where it's like all we got to do is hit a button, and it just sends a text, and it'll update like when the last time you tried to reach out to them. It's really, it's really sophisticated. Mm, I see. Cool. So, how's it like working with your dad and your family? It's interesting. I mean, a lot of people, like everybody, you know, always ask me, like, "Oh, hey, what do you do?" And I always tell them, "Hey, you know, I work with my family," and. You know, people always, some people tell me, oh, that would be great. I would love to work with my family. And then other people tell me, well, I would absolutely hate to work with my family. Like I hate my sister or I hate my brother or whatever. (laughs) I don't know. We don't really have that problem. I think we understand each other pretty well. And we've worked together for so long. I know, you know, what my brother's working style is. I know what my dad's working style is. So honestly, I think it's great. We all like to work. I don't think any of us could be accused of being lazy. So it's not like you know, this dynamic where one person is carrying the whole load type thing. So I think it's great. I mean, I I love working with my family. You know, I think sometimes, like I said, there's some people who wouldn't like it, but I'm definitely not one of those. Yeah, I know sometimes like, especially if like a father's involved, right, they would take control over the whole business, make all the decisions. And then they would be lecturing you the whole time, especially on these long drives, right? So you're like, yeah, yes, yes. Don't get me wrong. Like, there's definitely... I mean, I'm the least experienced in terms of like, I've been in the business world only for about four years. My dad's been doing construction forever. My brother's been 
in the business world since he was like 16 years old. So I've definitely learned a lot from them, but I don't think there's like this, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely a hierarchy in terms of like, my brother's the one who started this thing. And then I'm the one who sort of does the day-to-day stuff. And I report to Sam. And then my dad is the one who does the construction stuff. And he helps us out with like business stuff. Cause he's, he's really good for like business development, like just networking with people. And he's the kind of guy who can, you know, like go to a diner and just like talk to somebody and find out everything about them in 10 minutes. But I'm not that kind of person, but definitely there is like a a structure, but it's not like this thing where there's one person who's just, you know, lecturing everybody about how stupid they are or anything like that. I think everybody's listened to. So it's, everybody's happy. So that's really good. Is there anything that you do, I guess, to increase the efficiency of your business because you do focus on the day-to-day operations? We use software for just about everything. We use software for project management, whether it be like we use a program called Airtable where we can say, you know, here's how this rehab project is going and here's the completion progress. Here's how much we spent on this plumbing part or here's how much we spent on this or this or this. So in terms of just efficiency for that stuff, we use project management for any sort of like assigning tasks to people. We have, we use a program called Todoist. So just having systems in place for everything. We don't, I try not to communicate anything by, you know, just sending a text, just put it in some sort of company software. So it's there, it's not going anywhere. You're not going to like, you know, forget that you were asked to do something or that you asked somebody else to do something. So just having a system uh, for everything. I mean, because if you're at a small time, like if you're just sort of operating at a low level, then you can do that. You can convince yourself and you're right that you won't forget. But the bigger you get, it's harder to keep track of things. So I think just having a system for everything is huge. Yeah, it makes sense, especially if you have like a business with other people besides yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you have more than even two people, you need to have a system for everything. Like, or else you're just going to forget things and it's just going to be a mess. And the beautiful part about that is once you have a system, though, now you can outsource all of the work, basically. And then it really does become a system where you just put money in, you have the system, and then results come out at the back end. Right. Right. I mean, once you have a system in place, you can figure out, like, not only having a system, but also just having, like, like an SOP, like a standard operating procedure for this is what we do when this happens. This is what we do when this happens. And then after a while, after doing it for a while, there's not much that you're not prepared for. Just being prepared is huge, I think, for business. I mean, I've dealt with all kinds of different things, but at this point, I'm not like a, I haven't been doing this for 20 years, but I haven't been doing it for about four. So there are a lot of situations I've dealt with and just having everything organized is huge. I mean, we even have like a big document that we review regularly, just saying like, okay, here's how we do this. Here's how we do this. Here's how we do this. And I think it helps everybody, but it really helped me because I'm the one who put it together with my brother, of course. And yeah, it helped me as I was, as I was learning. You know, it seems like right now you guys have a pretty big operation going on where it's like a big machine. I mean, you're sending out what, 25,000 letters a month, which is a lot. And you have a lot of software, which also has costs. And again, I think a lot of people who are just starting out, they don't want to spend that kind of money. You know, they want to kind of dip their toes in the water before going all in. What was your guys' progression with like increasing your costs and expanding your direct mail reach to that kind of volume? 
Well, honestly, I mean, a lot of the software stuff doesn't cost much, if anything at all. But in terms of the, in terms of the mailers, I mean, once you, you know, are able to establish a good buyer base, a lot of those mailers, hopefully all of them end up paying for themselves and more. I mean, if you send out a $10,000 mailer, if you get one great deal from it, that pays for itself. Or if you get eight deals where you make a little bit of money, then you know that pays for itself and you make even more on top of that. And then that helps pay for the next one and that helps pay for the next one. And then once you do that for a while, you start to rack up some money. So just building a buyer base and knowing what you're doing, you know, here's sort of what we do well. And of course, expanding and trying to do what you do well, but also do other things well. So just expanding your buyer base and having a good like knowledge for what you're doing, I think is helpful. And it helps you, you know, on your mailing campaigns, on your email campaigns, on whatever software you want to use, knowing how to use it in an efficient, in an efficient manner. Yeah, I, th- I think that's helped us. We don't just like go into these things willy nilly. I mean, we try to look at both me and my brother, especially being younger, are really big on just the numbers and analytics and looking at, okay, what has worked for us in the past? How do we continue to tap into that? And then inevitably what ends up happening when you do that is you find something that works, you do it. But then along the way, sometimes you find something that also works, you do that. And then you try to find a a good mix of a bunch of things that made you money and been successful. So you just try to, you work to your strengths, I would say. That's the one thing I've learned. Yeah. I mean, I think the fear is just, you know, fear of committing because we're, we're on the outside of this, right? We don't send 25,000 letters. We don't know if it works or not. We've been told by different podcasts, you know, guests like yourself and other people who I talk to, but when we try it, it kind of sort of works. But again, we're not sending the kind of volume we're sending. So do you think there's like a certain budget that someone should have before they get into this kind of a project? Well, I mean, it really depends where you're starting out and what you're prepared to do. I mean, because these postcards, I mean, 30,000 postcards, it doesn't cost $30,000. It probably costs about $10,000. And if you have that kind of money and you can, you know, maybe even be prepared to buy one of the houses that come out of those postcards, then I, I mean, I think you should just work to wherever you're at in your business. I mean, if you're just starting, then I think your budget should be pretty low. But if you're just starting, but you have some knowledge and you, you know, maybe have the resources to buy a couple houses, if you think they're good deals, then your budget would be a little higher. But if you're just starting out, you know, you don't really have the experience to know what's a good deal and what's not, then I would set the lowest budget humanly possible. Maybe even partner on it with somebody, but maybe find somebody who you know, knows a lot about the business or the area or the, you know, the market and partner with them on it if they feel that it's a good venture. I mean, that's probably what I would do if I was just starting out and didn't feel all that confident that it would work. I would probably just try to find somebody who does and see if they can, you know, you guys can work together. And, and if you find somebody who's knowledgeable and they can help you out, a lot of good things can come from that. And that's usually what I tell a lot of like newer wholesalers when they ask me, what would you recommend for getting started? I always tell them like, you know, get with like a local expert and just like work for them for as long as you have to. Cause sometimes people don't want to work for somebody else, but you're going to have to at some point for a little bit, just uh, network with them and partner and see what can happen from there. Yeah. That's uh, some wise words of wisdom. You know, one big thing that 
I personally have a problem with is finding legitimate buyers. So people who are, you know, coming to meetup groups, oftentimes they're also wholesalers who want to just daisy chain your deals or they're buyers, but they are very skittish, right? They're, they're also nervous about buying the first one or they're from, you know, some real estate investing program where they give everyone this crazy formula where, you know, obviously you're basically buying for 65 cents on the dollar, which is very hard to do. Yeah. How do you go about finding good buyers who can close on time? I mean, it's hard, but you know, I mean, I think you have to canvas every area of networking that you possibly can. I mean, I mean, sometimes you meet a wholesaler who actually buys the stuff instead of just wholesaling it. So those can be good buyers. I mean, I've honestly found one of the best things to do is to talk to agents because sometimes agents have money and they're buyers, but other times they're working with investors and are always trying to find stuff for their clients. And agents are always going to want to help you because agents know that like, if I'm a wholesaler and I bring a house to an agent, like I feel like sometimes maybe wholesalers think agents hate them, but I don't really think that's true because I mean, quite frankly, like if an agent is brought a house by a wholesaler, the agent knows that if he or she can get that house sold, like they're going to get a commission out of it. So it's in their best interest that they <laughs> that they get the house sold. I mean, my biggest, like, I guess, route of success for a lot of this stuff has just been reaching out to agents and, you know, of houses who, who are buyer's agents for houses in the area and just saying, hey, you know, I got another one around here, something like that. And then after a while, I think you just things just start to land in your lap where you'll meet a few people and then they'll know others, other people, and they'll know other people, and they'll know other people, and it just sort of snowballs. And then, you know, a lot of times what ends up happening is you have, I mean, hopefully you have repeat business. So that is often, I think, the biggest moneymaker is just having a good rapport with the people that you sell to, them knowing that you're not trying to squeeze every dollar out of them, but you're trying to get them a good deal and also make some money, of course. I mean, it is a business, but, you know, repeat business, agents, and just every area of networking you can get your hands on. When you guys have a new deal, do you send out like an email blast or do you just call people on a short list? What's that process like for you? Email blast. I mean, if we have a deal where it's like the deal is basically already pending, we won't send it out. But primarily, yeah, we'll just send it out to everybody. And usually what I will do is I will send it out to everybody, but I will also, you know, send it out to a few people who I know, like for a fact, like this house works for them. And, you know, if it goes pending, they'll just mark it pending. But sometimes things get lost in people's emails. So I might just send them a text or something give them a call and just see, say, you know, Hey, you know, I sent out this deal, but let me know what you think and then go from there. And that, that has worked a lot in the past. So yeah, just email blast. I mean, I think it's good to get your name out there. You might reach people that you haven't really talked to that much in the past who are still on your list, but also, yeah, just keeping it in mind for the people who you've done business with a ton. And when they say, I want it, do you give them an opportunity to go look at the property or, you know, how does that work? Do they sign a contract with you guys and put an EMD down before you do that? Yeah. We always give people a chance to look. I mean, we don't, you know, hold people's feet to the fire and make them buy the house if they haven't even seen it and don't know if they'll be satisfied with conditions. So we, we always give people a chance to look. We try to, if we're wholesaling the house, we'll try to organize it so everybody gets in a, at one time. And then everything's just easier and more efficient. I mean, lately we started out with just wholesaling. Now we'll try to 
we'll actually buy the house and then we'll just set it up, you know, put a lot box on the house after closing and go from there. Yeah, it's easier because then you don't have that awkward conversation with the seller. Like, why are there like 20 people in my house? You know? Yeah. I mean, we, we're transparent about like, you know, here's what we're doing. Like we're buying a house and then we're going to sell it. I mean, we try not to beat the seller up too much on price where it's like, oh, hey, there's I see there's like a $10,000 assignment fee on this HUD. Why is that? So we try not to make it so, you know, the seller's taking a huge haircut in order for us to make a ton of money. Like, I think most wholesalers, it's not like they're hitting home runs on every deal. Because you guys are in Indianapolis. You guys have different numbers than we do here. But what are you trying to get per wholesale deal over in Indy? I would say... If we put down cash and buy the house, we try to make like at least 10, 15, 20, depending on the on the price point, obviously. And if we don't, we try to make, you know, seven. If we're if we're not putting down any money at all, we're just assigning the contract out. We try to make seven per deal. I sort of try to work my numbers around that. Uh, what is like the average purchase price of the properties you're buying in Indy? I mean, most of the stuff we're buying is like, you know, C-class rentals so those are primarily somewhere from 20 to 40 20 to 50 somewhere in there and then of course there are others that we buy with the plans of selling and those will go from you know 60 to 150 i would say so you buy for like 20 you wholesale for about 30 and then the how how much does rehab cost for a project like that uh those are primarily like you know 10 fifteen thousand dollar rehabs just a mixture of cosmetics and mechanicals. So about 45 all in and for the end buyer, right? And then what do you think those could rent for? Usually those are like 600 to $750 rentals. And those areas are like high crime or what? Or is this normal blue collar? It's a mix. I mean, there are definitely some areas that are high crime. I try to stay out of those areas as much as possible or at least get decent streets in those areas. And then a lot of them are just sort of blue collar, like you said, just average areas that aren't really, they aren't bad. They aren't great. They're just sort of flatlining. So yeah, I mean, those, I would say those are like, you know, C-class areas. And then the other stuff that I mentioned is like, where the stuff that we're buying, putting down cash, closing on it. And then just like that deal I mentioned earlier, where we're painting, putting carpet in and all that, you know, those are probably B, A-class areas, at least, you know. So those are like, you said it was like 80,000 to purchase? Yeah, somewhere from 60 to like, you know, 150. Okay. And then what are those rent for? Probably like 1300, 1400. Those are still pretty good numbers. I mean, especially relative to what we have over here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, they're not, they're definitely not bad. Like the one I mentioned earlier, we sold that one for like 122, I think, something like that. That's probably like a $1,400 rental, I would say. Mm, pretty cool. All right. So I remember you said that you left Maryland because you liked Indy better. Like, what, what's so great about Indianapolis? Well, I mean, obviously a big part of the draw is my brother's here, but I think everybody wants to leave where they grow up eventually. I mean, maybe not everybody, maybe everybody loves their hometown forever, but I'm, I was definitely not one of those people. And I don't know. I mean, Maryland didn't really have too much for me. So I just wanted to get a new start. And when you're in a new place, you know, just the newness of place will draw you in. But there's also a lot of stuff about Indy that I still love. I mean, people are friendly. It's really affordable to live here. Just friendliness, it's way different than Maryland. Maryland is an East Coast state, so it's just more competitive. And I mean, I don't mind competition by any means, 
but it's definitely like a lot more uptight, I would say. Indy's more relaxed and, you know, people love sports here. I'm a big sports fan. So yeah, it's just totally different vibe and definitely more, I would say, suited towards it, like a young professional. I think Maryland is a great place to be a kid. I don't think it's a great place to be like a young adult because it's just less affordable. So for Indianapolis, do you see growth in those like real estate markets? I mean, you've been there for about four years now, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, not in every single area, obviously, but there are definitely a lot of areas that even in the short time that I've lived here, I've seen change. Like, I mean, quite frankly, the area that I live has changed a lot. I mean, every time I drive drive by around the area, there's a new build going up or a new construction or something like that. And, and the house, the housing prices have gone up a lot. So yeah, definitely a lot of activity there. Very cool. And what kind of deal flow are you getting with those 25,000 mailers? We try to hit around, you know, 15, 20 a month, I would say. Like close. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we try. I mean, we work with a lot of people who, we, I mean, like I said, we have a lot of repeat business. So we work with a lot of people who, you know, we just know what they're looking for. So when I see a house, I say, oh, that's perfect for John or, oh, that's perfect for Bob. And I just know what they're looking for. So uh, it's not as hard as it seems because you kind of know like, oh, that's good fit or, oh, that's not. And just, you know, what to pursue and what not to. And what big challenges do you guys have right now? Well, I mean, obviously we're still in a uh, seller's market, so it is a little harder to get a good deal. But I think there are definitely deals out there. It's just you got to dig a little bit more and you got to, you know, be a little little more uncomfortable and go to areas maybe that you're not used to. But I think that's probably the biggest challenge, just finding deals. Mm -hmm. And what's next for you and your company? Well, we're trying to just, you know, keep things going. I mean, we're obviously we're always trying to grow. So, I mean, I would like to get to more, more deals every month. So just continuing to grow. So now that you have a bit of experience, let's imagine that, you know, you don't work with your dad, you don't work with your brother anymore. You're starting fresh, but let's say you have some money. Let's say fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. What would you do if you had to start over? If I had to start over, I would probably. I mean, I'm always big on partnerships and working with people that I know and that I have, you know, a high opinion of, and vice versa. So I would probably just start a partnership with somebody that I really like and just see where that goes and just work with other people. And yeah, I mean, just launch my own version of family business, but it not being a family. I mean, just working with people that I know and that I trust and just basically starting a new business with them. Uh, Let's talk a lot more about action steps because we can make partnerships all day and all night, but without actually doing anything, you're not going to have any profit. What would you actually do in in your new partnership? I'm an acquisitions guy. So I would probably work with a bigger buyer and say, hey, you know, I'll be your acquisitions guy. I'll do your rehab management. I'll do your property management, stuff like that. I would try to think of what am I good at? And I would say, how do I help this person that trusts me and that I trust? And how do I give them something they want? So first of all, I would go to a a partner who needs something. Like I wouldn't just go to somebody who's totally staffed, totally everything going perfectly, but I would go to a partner who is on the right track, but just needs a little bit in terms of like, maybe their acquisitions aren't going that well, or maybe their rehabs aren't going that well, or maybe they have a hundred vacancies. And I would go to them and say, well, that's something I'm good at. That's something I could help with. I'd be able to make some money. And if we're happy, they would continue to give me more and more responsibility. Those would be my action steps. Find something that 
somebody needs that I can do and that I enjoy doing and I'm good at and just leverage it. Basically, <laughs> that's probably what I would do. Awesome. So Isaac, how can people get in contact with you? You can call me anytime. My phone number is 317-204-2900. You can also go to our website at parrotpg.com. Perfect. And by the way, uh, those numbers you mentioned earlier about your wholesale prices for properties in Indianapolis, they sound super reasonable, super reasonable. You know, like most people who are buying properties out of state are usually looking in the 80K range, maybe 100K range for single family properties. But yours are obviously a lot less. We try to be fair. Yeah. Seems really good. So definitely anyone listening who wants to purchase properties in Indianapolis, give Isaac a call. I agree with that. Yeah. All right. Well, Isaac, thank you so much for your time and sharing your information about your business and about the market in Indianapolis. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No problem. All right, Isaac, take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Network with as many wholesalers and real estate agents as you can. Having more people in your network will give you access to a list of true cash buyers that will buy your deals when you get them. You need to consistently put out marketing materials to get deals. Isaac and his family spend over $10,000 a month in postcards and text message blasts. Finally, you need to understand your exit strategy. Are you going to wholesale it and invest a minimal amount of time and resources on the project? Or is it worth it to do some light rehab work before putting it back on the market? I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.